You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. time ago and uh, worked for MTV for a short period of time, working under the muse of Peter Doherty who found the Beastie Boys, a bit of a tyrant in the industry but learned a lot from him and used to work on the production side of the MTV idents, the animation idents, which is probably one of the coolest things about MTV. But in those days we had, we had bands literally playing in the basement, it was in Candom Town in London, so you'd have, you know, you'd have Nirvana one night, Bjork another. Uh, it was quite an exciting time at MTV, but I was only there for about six months. I've been to Camden, and that was a lot of fun. That city is great. Yeah, it's pretty buzzing, Camden. I don't go there much these days, more for the youngsters. <laughs> but it is still a, a pretty buzzy part of London, that's for sure. So after you went to MTV, what kind of stuff did you do? Yeah, I was associate producer on the, the animation idents for the channel, you know, the ones where the logo comes on screen. So I basically speak to producers and animators and uh, talk to them about ideas about those and produce them and put them through put them through the channel. So even at that early stage of my film career, I was already doing quite a bit in marketing. Uh, you know, before I went to film school, I'd always edit my own trailers. You know, I'd shoot my own footage or I'd get footage from movies that I loved and I'd cut them to film music because I've been into film music now for maybe 30 years of my life. I'm an avid collector of met and interviewed a lot of my idols like Hans Zimmer, Danny Elfman, Jerry Goldsmith, who's no longer with us, sadly. Yeah, I spent a short period of time during my film school career in uh, L.A. and uh, was lucky enough to meet a lot of them at the sound recording sessions. Surprisingly, on a film production, the film composer is the person who the press are less interested in. So if you just turn up and say, you know, I, I know your work, I'd like to interview you for a film music magazine you suddenly find yourself on the lot at Warner Brothers or Universal sat watching Mark Isham score The Addams Family or Danny Elfman doing someone else. So that was, that was quite wonderful. I had about $2 in my back pocket when I went to meet Bill Conti. And he was sat there with his two Oscars on his piano, a blonde by the pool, talking to him about his Rocky scores and his music to Dallas and Dynasty. <laughs> that was quite an amusing afternoon. <laughs> Bless him. He doesn't do any music anymore, but he does conduct for the Oscars every year. And so fast forward to the end of my um, film days, uh, my film graduation days, and then MTV. And then I was basically broke. I made a short film at college that was entered into the BAFTA Awards, didn't win anything, but it basically put me about six grand in the red. And in those days, that was a lot of money. And so I was effectively had a backpack on, and I was going to just head out to Florence and just have a bit of a break 
but I'd already been to a job interview to a company called Momentum Productions, and they called me up literally as I was on the escalator to head to the airport and said I'd got the job. And that conversation turned into a 20-year career of me working in a company that I basically grew and built with a, a colleague of mine. And uh, at the height of our production, we had 22 people working for us. We were turning over £2.5 million a year and working on pretty much all of Miramax and Disney's releases. That was pretty fun. For everything from Lion King to Pulp Fiction to English Patient to Armageddon, it was uh, quite a buzzy time. But years ago, you were actually given quite a lot of freedom to create trailers and TV commercials for the UK and international. You know, John Lasseter literally gave me Toy Story 2 and said, there you go, make my TV commercials, which nowadays all of it's done in LA. All the creative is produced over there, and then it just gets shipped to the international territories, and they, they are instructed to use it, literally stick an end card on that says, in cinemas now. A lot of it's to cut costs, but also the cost of marketing films is so expensive that they like to retain control in L.A. And so for me, that became less interesting, to be honest, creatively. And so I started to, you know, not enjoy my job as much, started to think about directing my own films. That was the reason I left Liverpool in the first place. And then that led me on the past six years. We basically merged our company with someone else. And uh, I quit my job at the end of July last year to focus on my own filmmaking career. And to be honest, Mike, to also just have a breather because I was exhausted after 20 years of marketing, two and a half thousand films, you need a break. So what brought you to Ira and to Exterminatrix? Yeah, her name's Ira. I mean, it is spelled Ira, and some people in Belgium call her that, but uh, it's Ira because the film was originally called The End of an Era. We like that title. It was, uh, it was cute and tied in, but it was a bit of a downer. You know, it was like the end of something, I think, if you saw a poster called The End of an Era, feels like a bit like a war movie or a period drama. So, uh, But to answer your question, when, when did I first meet her? It was basically 2008 in April. And we have, I have quite a lot of colourful friends, to say the least. And we were at a very big fancy dress party. And uh, Era turned up and she was, you know, in a full latex catsuit, walking around the party, not hard to miss. And as well as a filmmaker, I'm a photographer, so... We struck up a friendship, and it was literally there was a there was a foot of freezing snow outside. So to have a picture of her in this latex outfit in the snow in the middle of the countryside in the UK was quite something. So she liked the pictures. We had a laugh. I mean, she then basically, even though she lived in Antwerp, she visited the UK quite often, and we'd regularly meet up. I'd regularly take a lot of pictures of her for a website at the time or just for fun, and that's that's how I got to know her really. So how did that relationship turn into a movie? Well, when I met her, she was such an entertaining personality. I mean, she would just tell an anecdote and you'd be gripped instantly. I mean, even with her broad uh, Belgium accent, she's, uh, her English is very good. And so many a time at a party, she'd start telling some of her tall tales. And, you know, within five minutes, you know, the table would you know be gripped. You'd be laughed, you'd be inspired, you know, you'd be shocked by some of the tales. And partly, as a filmmaker, I just thought, this person's, you know, awesome. She needs to be in front of the camera, not just from a photography perspective. And so I, had, I started uh, thinking of the idea of making of a film about her life then. We talked about it on and off, and she was into the idea, but also, you know, she was clearly to and froing from Antwerp and working quite a bit. And then... When uh, the incident happened uh, in 2005, 
that basically really motivated me to make the film even more. At the time, I was flying to Texas to see a friend of mine called Michael Perry, who was about to be executed on death row. And uh, basically, he'd been a friend of mine who I'd been writing to for a charity called Lifelines. And uh, as I was on the bus transporting to the aeroplane, I looked at the, the London new newspaper and it had the, the headline of Dominatrix uh, Kills Englishman. And uh, that was the story about era. So that was quite a shock at the time. And also almost, you know, at that point I realized now I really have got to make the film because I'm sure, you know, what happened wasn't what the papers were saying. And that's, you know, what turned out to be true. Now, I know that the British papers, they're usually very staid and they're not sensationalistic at all. Really? Which ones do you read? I'm completely joking with you. Yeah, they must have just fallen on that like meat to a pack of wolves. You had me there for a minute. Well, I think, uh, you know, the press in Antwerp were, were not very kind to her, too. I mean, they don't look uh, kindly on that kind of activity. And I think there had been another case involving a judge the previous year. So to them, it was, you know, a perfect opportunity just to, you know, uh, use a situation like this and just get the best publicity out of it that they could. The UK wasn't so bad. I mean, they, they, it was in a few key papers, but again, typical headlines, you know, most extreme dominatrix in the world you know, kills British man, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the, they lasted for about a day, and then, you know, the news was gone. I mean, basically, that's that's what was reported. But clearly, the, the effect it was having on Era's life was a bit more serious at the time. I still want to ask you so many questions about her and everything, but I know that's going to be taken care of in your documentary. But if you can, please tell me why they would call her the most the world's most extreme dominatrix. I mean, that was her tagline. That's what she was known as. And so, she, you know, she did have a very active website. I mean, she had been active for maybe 10 years at that point. And so she had also invested a great deal of her own money and time and effort into building, you know, one of the most advanced BDSM studios in Europe. So if you were in the know and you had the money and you wanted to go to the person who was basically going to be, you know, the most creative with you, she, she was the person to, to go to. So effectively, she'd done her own marketing. That's where it came from. And in terms of the extreme, it really is down to the amount of services. A lot of dominatrixes will do the typical stuff, you know, the spanking, the caning, a bit of humiliation, treat you as an ashtray. I mean, you name it. I won't go into too much detail. I'm sure the listeners have got their own ideas on what dominatrixes do. But a lot of them particularly play a role, and they, they personify a role that's based upon a cliche or what people would expect. Ira never was like that. She would basically be herself. You know, she's always been a very creative, very independent woman from a very early age. So she wouldn't adopt the attitude or the cliche persona of a dominatrix. She would apply herself, her own creativity to activities that she felt, you know, the client wanted and be as creative with them as possible. So that's, you know, she got a lot out of that. I think she made people feel that they were special, that they were experiencing something for the first time and that it wasn't just about you know gratification or humiliation or the usual things that are associated with it so there's more detail there than you necessarily need to know but that's you know also what i found fascinating about her she wasn't playing the role from a cliche perspective and she had a lot of loyal clients because of it over the years people that you know kept going back to her time and time again 
how was she when you said we should make a movie, we should do a documentary on you? From the initial inception, she was interested. I mean, clearly she'd had a lot of attention. She used to perform at a number of clubs throughout Europe. You know, her website was known. She'd done a number of photo shoots. So she she's not shy, let's put it that way. But I think when she got to know me and knew my work, met my wife, you know, knew that I'm a, I was a you know, very creative filmmaker that wanted to, you know, do justice to her story and tell it creatively, not tell it from a scandalous position or to tell it to, you know, make, you know, money out of the situation or basically to, you know, tell the story like a tabloid would. And really it was about her. I mean, the the story came from our friendship. So that when that trust was built, I think she felt uh, comfortable to discuss the prospect. And then it, it took a long time, you know, clearly the effect on Era's life in 2010, you know, she was on a journey then when she left Antwerp, she went to Mexico. I mean, she went to other parts of the world and then she basically had to heal herself because her health wasn't great. She discovered yoga and she was on, you know, a very different transformational path at that stage. So my communication with her was limited at times, but I always held the vision that we'd make the film one day properly. And in 2010, Basically, after the incident and before she uh, was to lose her house and claim bankruptcy, I spent a week with her doing key interviews that basically I went there to see, look, is there a film here? You know, can we work this out? And in that week, you know, the footage that I did shoot will comprise of two or three of the, the major interviews in the film. And they're the ones that, you know, really reveal what happened. They're, they're very gripping. They're very moving. I'm very cinematic, and from that point on, I realized there was a film, and it took me another four years, really, to quit my job and then visit here or elsewhere in the world to continue the process. Who are some of your influences when it comes to documentary work? I think documentary films are, are really strong at the moment. I mean, they have, you know, we've had Searching for Sugar Man, Touching the Void, you know, uh, Man on Wire. I mean, they're just, they've turned the corner in terms of, I think, dramatic creativity. You know, how they're cut together, the music, the editing, and the gripping. I mean, I I love fictional film, don't get me wrong. I mean, I grew up on Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Mark Scorsese, Coppola, like the rest of us film fanatics. But for me, documentary is, it's still an art form that you don't know what you're going to capture on the day. There's still a huge amount of risk involved. There's a huge amount of trust. And then when it comes to the editing as well, it's, you know, it's always organic. It's always developing into something else that you didn't necessarily expect. You know, Werner Herzog's one of my best, uh, one of the best documentary filmmakers in the world, I think. And, you know, testament to his filmmaking skills that, you know, you see him do documentary after documentary, that each one is very different and has a different energy, a different vibe. I mean, it's great that he has his booming voice to narrate them all, and he's a bit of an egomaniac, but bless him, you know, his films are very unique and very gripping. And to be honest with you, I think there's more interesting stories in real life than in fiction. And to actually make fictional films, I've tried it on a lot of short movies, it's really bloody hard work. <laughs> and unless you have an amazing crew, quite a chunk of money, and you're willing to work with actors time and time again to capture the magic, then uh, it can be a real struggle. So I'm happy to let the Terence Malick's of this world, he's my number one, favorite director, create the films he does, and uh, I'll be quite content to make uh, hopefully inspiring documentaries for the next few years at least. 
And tell me a little bit about your crew on this film. Well, my uh, wife is a professional makeup artist of 20 years, so she's been supporting me and doing Era's makeup throughout the whole production, as well as other people that we've interviewed and uh, Era's daughter, Charlotte. And currently I've got a great editor called uh, Alec Limwell, who lives in the UK. He's not far from me, so he's done a number of documentaries on David Bowie, Muse, Sex Pistols, so he's busy at work at the moment. And uh, camera-wise, I've actually shot probably half the film myself, particularly all the footage in Antwerp. But then when I went to Goa, I uh, had the great camera work of a young cameraman called uh, Nouvelle and uh, found him online, free Vimeo, looked at his promo work. It was very striking, so he came on board. And then sound-wise, I have a great guy from uh, India as well called Danush. He was recording the sound in India. But basically in Goa, it was I was directing, producing. I had one cameraman, one sound guy, one makeup artist, and uh, the people who we were with chipping in, I mean, it was literally that smaller crew. But in Antwerp, when I've shot footage over there, it's been myself, another cameraman that I used, and uh, and one assistant. <laughs> so it's been a very minimal crew, to be honest. And uh, I've been had to be very creative with how I've shot things in terms of spending as little as possible, because I haven't had a great deal you know, of money to spend on it. But that's, again, it's part of the part of the creativity and that's why documentaries I think you can get some amazing footage on a low budget. Now I know you're looking for finishing funds on Indiegogo. Where are you at with the actual production of the film? Everything's shot, bought a few interviews, all the teaser trailers done, key arts done, the marketing's in place. So effectively we need to start editing the main feature film come the end of the campaign in July. So that's actually going to be a reasonably fast process because I've been very articulate with the scenes that I've shot in the film and the story. It's literally laid out. Not that I storyboarded the film, but certainly I've constructed the scenes and the sequences. So I haven't got 100 or two hours of worth of footage to go through. We're going to be pretty quick, pretty lean, and get the thing edited pretty quickly. But the main production cost comes down to the editing costs. We want to do a really... Uh, stunning grade on the film and a great mix but also era in the film tells uh, 10 domination stories ranging from the most expensive to the most extreme to the funniest and when she tells those stories to camera i'm not actually going to cut to footage of those scenes we're going to cut to very high-end uh, 2d animation a bit like the manga sequence in kill bill to really show the scene in a very cinematic way uh, but that effect, that's going to cost quite a bit to do to do that justice. So that's quite a chunk that needs to be handled. And it's probably going to be about maybe 10 to 8 minutes of bespoke animation in the whole film. So it's clearly going to take a bit of time to do that too. But we're very excited about that part of it. And uh, so that's where the main money will go. And then also, to be honest, uh, a lot of my co-producers have been working with me since last mo- November. She's been, you know, amazing uh, collaborator but she's been working on deferred payments i literally haven't been able to pay her anything yet and uh, as well as a few key a few other key people on the production that have been working on it as a labor of love but also you know i need to pay them something to well i will pay them something absolutely because of the great work that they put in so the great thing about indiegogo i mean years ago i was I was reluctant to make a movie because if you needed to raise money, you'd really have to know people in the money. 
raise it yourself independently or just, you know, kiss the bum of some serious producers who would basically want a lot of creative control on Final Cut. But thankfully, since Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you know, it's basically the start of your marketing campaign. You know, you're putting out your film and your brand to the world. You're engaging the public. You know, if you do it well, hopefully we are making it interesting for people out there. Then you get their backing, you get their interest early on, which I think when people actually contribute, it means a lot to us on a creative, on a personal level, but it's also exciting to see that people are wanting to see the film and they're willing to pay now and wait later. But certainly, you know, we're, at 30, we're almost at 30% of our target. We've got over 30 days to go, so we're very confident that we're going to reach that. We're absolutely going to reward every perk that's claimed. And we're already, uh, we've got lots of PR interest from a number of people, and we are talking to some serious film distributors about a distribution deal, and there may be some news about that in the coming weeks, so fingers crossed. Yeah, this should be the best marketed documentary, I would imagine, with your 20-some years of experience. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of, I've kind of, it's a lawyer's job at the moment. I've, uh, I've kind of maybe spent too much time on the marketing and the need to get cracking on the editing of the film, but thanks for saying that. I mean, I enjoy it. I mean, it's absolutely awesome now to be working on a film of my own with the crew and marketing it that way rather than someone else's film. Absolutely no disrespect to all those great films I've worked on over the years, but there's, you know, there's a, there's a freedom to it. There's, a, there's an excitement to it. You know, there's a lot of hard work to it. And also, I mean, I've put in almost, you know, four to five years of work now and invested quite a bit of my own money. So at the end of the day, I mean, I really just want to make the best film possible, uh, pay people who are involved, you know, and if on the back end of it, we get it seen, we get a limited cinema release, a great home end release and a download release, and uh, we get a great response to the film and make some money out of it, then, you know, happy days. That'd be icing on the cake. Now, you talked about your passion for film music, for scores. Who's doing the score for the film? Well, it's my good friend, Noko, from Liverpool, who used to be a former member of Apollo 440 for many years. They produced several albums. But he's a, you know, he's a great musician. I mean, he can play everything from guitar, bass, keyboard, you name it. And uh, he's a great songwriter, too. So he's already on a path of film composing. He scored two films, one called The Prey for French cinema. And he's done a number of, he's done absolutely hundreds of remixes for the likes of U2, Bjork, Massive Attack. And he's done a lot of video games too. So thankfully he agreed. I mean, he for years would just say, Darren, just get on with making your film, mate. And then come and speak to me about the music, will you? So he was actually thrilled when I'd made the decision to quit my job and focus on this movie. He, He's met Ira, too, on on a number of occasions at her party, so, you know, that really helped as well. You know, when he saw the scope of the film and how I was telling the story, he was definitely on board from day one. And so far, he's been been great. He's done a number of tracks that you can hear in the trailer and a number of tracks that I'm using, uh, cutting some clips together this very weekend. Literally today, I called him up and said, look, this scene is, you know, really working, you know, can you adapt this track? And within hours, you know, he sent me, you know, about five or six versions. So thanks to him so far for all the hard, hard work he's done and the, and the music. I want the music to be a, a character in the film. I don't want it to be an incidental score. I want it to be, to really propel the story at times and to be exciting for people to come out of the cinema and, you know, be humming certain themes. He's written a, a great theme song for the film that he actually sings on to. So I'm hoping that you can, play that out today so people can get a sense of that uh, with the lyrics that tells the story of ex-dominatrix in a really in a really dynamic way 
Now, it sounds like you really have your act together when it comes to making this film. But of course, nothing ever goes to plan. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had making the movie? Yeah, I love the nothing goes to plan ethos. I mean, I'm quite a uh, creative but spiritual person, and you know, you make your play, f- you make your plan for the day, and then the day makes its plan for you. So, I always actually enjoy the happy accidents. And to be honest, the first day of filming in Goa, I took some ma- malaria tablets to, you know, to stop me getting malaria from mosquitoes. Seemed that it was a bad move at the time. There aren't that many mosquitoes in India, but literally, I got an allergic reaction to them. So. We we were in a, a animal sanctuary of a friend of Era's filming her from, from a rooftop. We were on the rooftop. We were filming her walking out of a swimming pool, uh, like Bond style, in a bathing outfit. But literally, I came out in a rash on my chest. My eyes went blood red, like Christopher Lee out of Dracula, and uh, my glands you know, literally filled up. So I turned towards the crew to say action on the first shot and they literally went, oh, what the hell is going on with you? I was like, what's the matter? They said, are you stressed or something? And I looked in the mirror and I tell you, it was not a happy sight. So thankfully I was in an animal sanctuary and they had had some antihistamine tablets. I took some of those and a couple of hours later, I started looking less like the elephant man and more like uh, myself. But no, there was another day we had Era basically in high heels and a tight skirt walking. She said, I want to do an interview outside uh, this. There's, a, there's an old ruin of a prison. And she talked about her prison. She spent some prison time after the incident in the film and she wanted to do that interview outside a prison. So we said, sounds great, perfect location. We drive there and the prison is literally on top of this hill about a mile away across this uh, sharp gravel. So... You know, to see Era going literally stomping up this hill in these, you know, leather high heel boots, tights and a tight dress getting to the top. And and then that was one thing, but actually going down was, oh, Christ, you, you, you can imagine. We got to the bottom, we were happy that we'd shot the interview, but she turned to me, she said, never, never make me do that again. I said, it was your suggestion. <laughs> What's your target date for release on this? Well, we are hoping to release end of the year, early next you know, all going well. So it really depends on how fast we can edit the film, what the distribution deal we're building in place. I mean, look, we're going to honor every person that contributes and gets a perk. So if you've ordered a download or a DVD or you've got tickets to the premiere, you know, that's definitely going to happen and you're top of the list for the first people to receive uh, the film when it's finished. And where can folks go to uh, fund the film and find out more about it? Our crowdfunding campaign is live on Indiegogo at the moment, so I'd love for anyone to check that out. We've been the top trending film for the past seven days uh, on the film site, which is you know really exciting. And our website is uh, x-movie.com. So on there you can see the teaser trailer. There's a page called Indiegogo. If you click on that, it takes you through to the campaign page. And then we we're doing daily updates on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, you name it. So please check it out. I mean, over the next coming weeks, we've got a, a number of exciting perks available, including segments from Knocko's score, a calendar of uh, exclusive photography that no one's ever seen of ERA 2016 calendar, and uh, a number of uh, exclusive clips from the film that we're going to be uploading. Also, it's a national holiday on June the 21st, Father's Day. I'm going to return home to Liverpool to see my folks. My father... He's, he's not very well at the moment, bless him. He's hanging in there just about, so I'm going to go up to see him. But then after that, I will be in 
the centre of Liverpool in Bowl Street with a uh, dominatrix sat on a throne giving dads a spank you for being a super dad. So I'll be doing fun pictures of Liverpoolian dads getting their bottom spanked, which I'm sure is going to cause a bit of a riot. But hey, there is no stunt we will not do to hit our target on this movie. So there you are. Be warned. Hey, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun talking to you today. Mike, well, I appreciate the time and uh, anyone who's listening, you know, thanks for, for listening in. I hope you enjoy some of the music from the soundtrack Mike's uh, going to play. And uh, from everyone, myself here and the crew, lots of love and namaste to you all. I've seen 